I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So before we kick off today's episode, wanted to take a moment to announce that after almost two years on the podcast, it's crazy to think it's been that long, our friend and co-host Tata Shida has decided to step away from his hosting duties to enable him time to focus on some other projects he's been wanting to work on. He'll still be helping us out in a more limited capacity behind the scenes, but we're definitely going to miss having him here on the show. You know, sometimes it's hard to believe that the first U.S. congressional hearing on climate change took place all the way back in 1988. It was then when NASA scientist Dr. James Hansen testified about how human-generated greenhouse gases were warming our planet, and that if unchecked, the warming would have dire consequences. As we know, despite his and many other subsequent warnings, Congress has been painfully slow to act. It did pass the first wind energy tax credit in 1992 and solar in 2006 that together have helped accelerate our transition to renewable energy. But it's really only been in recent years where passing something more comprehensive, like the Inflation Reduction Act, has become a possibility. The change in the federal government's willingness to tackle climate change is a direct result of the growth in the number of everyday people pushing for climate action. So today, we're going to talk about what it means to engage your elected officials, why it matters, how we can all help break down the partisan divide, as well as ways each of us can get involved. But before we go there, let's take a minute to talk about our recent individual climate actions and this week's Reason for Hope. Yeah, we haven't done this in a while, but I think it's always good to have a little bit of accountability and also celebrate the actions that we've taken, big or small, to help fight climate change. This week, I started working again at my college's science outreach program, which was on pause because of the pandemic. So it's been very exciting to be back. We teach kids a curriculum that's based on climate change and environmental justice once a week. This year, I'm working with some really cool fifth graders, and it's been Really, really fun so far. So how about you two? Thomas, I'll let you go first. <laughs> Jeez, Jason. Um, so uh, I, I did say my uh, resolution for this year was making sure that I looked after the trees that I'd planted. And um, I did do the rounds of them a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, I've had really good survival rate this year. Uh, I also increased the capacity of one of our electric vehicle chargers by 50%, although it's still only 75 kilowatts, which is pretty um, small by US standards, but um, that's keeping the local EV drivers happy. Uh, how about you, Jason? You know, nothing quite on that scale. I have given a few tips to friends and family who are in the market for an electric vehicle. And then I also uh, fairly recently called on our our senators here in Oregon to pass the the Forests Act that we've talked about a number of times so now that we've shared a little bit about our own actions, Thomas, what do we got for uh, this week's Reason for Hope? Yeah, so when you look at global steel production, it accounts for about 8% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. And there's technology that's been developed to try and decarbonize this, commonly known as green steel. And Sweden has been one of the biggest drivers of the development of green steel, uh, primarily the Swedish uh, steel manufacturer SSAB. 
not to be confused with a former car manufacturer, SAAB or Saab. Um, <laughs> but they've been supplying steel to, to Volvo trucks and the first green steel truck has been delivered uh, to a company in North America <laughs> who ironically use it as a dump truck for distributing asphalt uh, on roads. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so it's, it's great that we're finally starting to see this steel uh, provided in commercialized solutions. And it's, it's not just a, a niche product anymore, but it's something that's now becoming mainstream. So hopefully this can get other manufacturers to stop talking the talk and uh, start walking the walk in that regard. Yeah, I mean, you really got to give the Swedes kudos for for leading, you know, in this space. And you know, now that they've proven it's you know it's doable, it's just really a matter of squeezing the other manufacturers out there to to step up. So while lobbying for climate action may not be people's favorite thing to do, we're definitely in a moment in the world where every voice matters. For those who aren't familiar, last month's report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change made it clear that although we're making progress on reducing emissions, it isn't happening quickly enough. And, you know, sparing you the long document to read through, in essence, we have less than 10 years to cut global emissions in half if we want to avoid the type of, you know, worst case scenarios that none of us want to see, you know, things like global food shortages, billions of climate refugees, mass extinction, et cetera. The, the good news is that we have all the solutions we need to solve this. We just need to implement them faster. And while, you know, many governments around the world have taken big steps in recent years to try to cut their emissions, what we need to do now is is to close the gap. And so that really comes back to all of us, you know, pushing our government to make those, you know, additional, deeper, more rapid cuts that we need to limit warming to to levels that scientists say is is needed to keep us in a safer space. So our guest today to talk about climate advocacy is Flannery Winchester. Flannery is the Senior Director of Communications for Citizens Climate Lobby. Her previous roles as copywriter, email marketer, and magazine editor honed her communication skills. And after reading Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, she decided to use her professional skills to help advance the climate movement. She began volunteering her time at Citizens Climate Lobby, or CCL, back in 2015 and joined their team in, in 2017. And for folks who may not know, CCL is a nationwide grassroots nonprofit working to advance climate policy. They have more than 200,000 supporters spread around the globe in nearly 50 other countries. So yeah, we're excited to have Flannery on the program today to talk about CCL and, and the exciting work that they're doing. Flannery, welcome to Climate Optimus. Thank you, Jason. I'm excited to be here. So let's start you off with a question we do all our guests. When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Yeah, this is a great question because there's so many headlines that make us not hopeful, right? There's scary stuff we're seeing in the news all the time and it feels like more and more. But I think what makes me hopeful is that there's 
more awareness and concern than ever among just regular folks. So there's a project called the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication oh, yeah. uh, that does, yeah, they do public opinion polls and surveys. And most recently, they found that about one in four Americans, so it's 26% of Americans are what they call alarmed. So they separate their survey takers into six, what they call the six Americas. And so it ranges from alarmed about climate change to dismissive about climate change. And so about one in four Americans are alarmed. Uh, and they point out that those alarmed people outnumber dismissive people by more than two to one. So only 11% of Americans are dismissive of the problem. Sometimes it can feel like the voices that deny climate change or say that it's not you know, that big of a problem, or we shouldn't do that much about it, or we shouldn't worry about it. It feels like those voices can be really loud, right. but they are in the distinct minority. And the plurality of people are really, really worried about this problem. And actually, it is also the majority are either alarmed or concerned is the next category down. And it's 53% of Americans are either alarmed or concerned. Um, and that makes me hopeful, because if we all are starting to put our attention on something and, and kind of sound the alarm, then it's only a matter of time before our uh, elected officials respond with the scale and the speed of the solutions that we need. We've um, talked a little bit about the Yale survey before and great piece of work. We'll definitely link it with this interview because I think it's good to you know also just realize that you're not the only one, right? That there are all these people out there that, that deeply care about this and, and want to see the problem fixed. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of like when we all enough of us get worried about something that that our elected officials have to respond, um, we are starting to see that. And that's that's something else that makes me hopeful is the end of last summer, uh, Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm sure you guys have talked, <laughs> uh, talked about yes. it on this show and, you know, variety of ways. But the fact that that was able to, you know, to come together and to get across the finish line is really, really encouraging because last Congress, there was a lot of work on the what originally started out as, as the Build Back Better bill and the, you know, it was going to be all these different issues addressed in and one by one they they fell away as there was not enough public support or enough support within Congress to keep uh, keep those issues in and get broad agreement on them. But the issue that made it all the way to the end was climate. Yeah, I like that framing. Let's get to kind of who Citizens Climate Lobby is for folks who might not be familiar and talk a little bit about some of its you know past successes. Sure thing. So Citizens Climate Lobby is a grassroots nonprofit organization. We're working on climate change, obviously, but specifically the way we work is that we push Congress to take action on climate. We have chapters all around the country who are asking Congress to pass big national climate legislation. So historically, we've been working for a price on carbon pollution. Um, we're still pushing for that. We're also pushing for permitting reforms that will help unlock our clean energy potential all across the country. So that's our orientation is we are we are trying to move uh, Congress forward on this issue so we can get the kinds of policies we need. And the other thing to know about us is that we're nonpartisan. Climate change doesn't care if you're in a red state or a blue state. And so we want to work with anyone who is serious about solving it. And then we, a couple times a year, we do events in D.C. where we all come to the Capitol and uh, have something like 500 meetings in one day with basically we meet with 
just about all of Congress uh, about these issues. So that's kind of our claim to fame. Citizens Climate Lobby, we have to have to have a big lobby day, right? Yeah, it makes sense. And if I, you know, I understand correctly, too, you guys have chapters in, in other countries, too, right? You're not, you know, just focused in the United States, you're focused elsewhere on climate yeah, so we structurally we our international work has actually spun off into its own entity. So um, so we have Citizens Climate Lobby here in the states, and then internationally we have Citizens Climate International. And so yeah, there's lots of lots of exciting things happening internationally as well. Yeah, I wanted to point that out too because we have listeners all around the world, and you know, it, folks may want to check out and see if they've got you know a local um, Citizens Climate chapter in their in their neighborhood. Absolutely. Yeah. Our, on our website, the chapter page has U.S. chapters and international chapters. So everything's all right there. Um, and you can find, find the closest one. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, price on carbon, because that's obviously, you know, garnered a, a ton of attention and become, you know, a lot more mainstream in the dialogue. Can you talk a little bit about the solution that Citizens Climate advocates for, you know, and, and why the CCL is pushing for one? Sure. So um, for many years, this was our, we were only working on trying to get this policy uh, passed through Congress. And the policy is what we call a carbon fee and dividend. It's a way to put a price on carbon pollution. And then the revenue raised from that goes back to Americans so that nobody is impacted economically from higher energy costs. But in fact, most people come out ahead financially under a plan like this. And so we spent many years um, focused just on that, as I mentioned. And then last fall, we started to expand our policy portfolio a little bit because in the years that we've been working climate change has continued to advance. And so we also want to make sure we can do um, not just this, the biggest thing, but uh, a whole lot of other things that will, that will help reduce emissions as quickly as we can. So now we're also engaging on permitting reform, uh, which Congress is working on now. We are doing some stuff in the space of healthy forests and like urban trees and also building electrification and efficiency because the Inflation Reduction Act opened up a lot of opportunities there locally. And so all those areas are, are places where we're working now to try to advance policy that we need. And back just briefly to, the, to that question of emissions, um, the path that we're on right now with the policies that are in place would lead us to about 28% emissions cuts by 2030. And I believe that's below 2005 levels. So permitting reform, if we were to adjust the permitting processes at the federal level so that we could uh, build and connect enough clean energy, we would be able to get down to 40% cuts by 2030. Uh, and if we had a carbon price, we would be down to 52% cuts by 2030. And then healthy forests and building electrification, those other policy areas that we work on, they would add even a bit more on top of that. It's pretty amazing to think that, you know, policies like that can have such a massive impact given that we're already, you know, in 2023. So, you know, fingers crossed you guys are successful there. Uh, well, given, you know, the focus on convincing elected officials to, you know, take up and um, address the issues of climate change, what does CCL's approach to, to lobbying look like? Yeah, so our whole vibe, for lack of a better word, is uh, <laughs> is respectful and appreciative. I don't know if you've uh, been aware of our politics in the last 10 or 15 years, but there's not a lot of respect and appreciation going around. <laughs> That's um, fair. And so 
the way that we very intentionally approach our members of Congress is is with appreciation for something, even if that is that is only appreciating them for being in public service. Uh, if you can't say anything that you like about what they've specifically done with that public service, just <laughs> just appreciate that they have they are in public service and then respect as well. I mean, that's you know, it's not something that that members of Congress get enough of, I think, in their their voicemail boxes, their uh, Twitter mentions. So, you know, I know folks might be listening to this and, and especially within the American political divide thinking like, well, does that, you know, really make inroads? And, you know, I know it's easy to fall into cynicism, but yeah, what are your thoughts? I mean, you know, what do you guys see on the front lines as you're, you know, talking to these members of Congress and engaging them in that, you know, respectful, grateful way? Yeah, absolutely. We are seeing progress from this approach. And of course, we all want to see progress faster (laughs) than we've seen it. Um, But we are seeing progress. Our approach here changes the tone of the dialogue within Congress itself around climate change. So let me kind of rewind the tape a little bit and we'll go back uh, a few years and talk about the something called the House Climate Solutions Caucus. Are you familiar with this group? Yes, our our listeners may not be, but so maybe you want to explain what it is and then yeah, so um, there was a caucus in the House that was formed as intentionally a bipartisan caucus, and the intent was to bring Republicans and Democrats together to talk about climate change, to talk about solutions, and find areas where they might be able to join together on bipartisan climate legislation. So we were integral, Citizens Climate Lobby was integral in the formation of that caucus. And we managed to actually help grow that caucus to 90 members um, before the 2018 midterm. So that was 45 Republicans and 45 Democrats. It was evenly bipartisan. They called it a Noah's Ark style caucus, where in order for uh, someone to join, they had to bring a partner from the from across the aisle. That type of space never existed in Congress before. That kind of dedicated group simply was not there. And that's something that emerged out of CCL's respectful, appreciative, nonpartisan approach. And since then, uh, the House Climate Solutions Caucus actually inspired a Senate group of the same name that's still active. So the Senate Climate Solutions Caucus, again, an evenly bipartisan caucus of senators. And now there's actually specifically a conservative climate caucus just for Republicans in the House. So we've seen uh, this, this willingness to engage just continue to grow and grow and, you know, I'll just say, or I'll acknowledge that partisanship in, as you said, like in our political system is uh, is difficult to overcome, but the way that we work is intended to help overcome that because we're empowering grassroots voices, just regular people all across the political spectrum. And then we're asking all of Congress to rise up to that level of climate action that we need. So it sounds like, you know, you're you've been able to restore, let's say, a more constructive, you know, dialogue both in, in the House and the Senate, which is which is huge. You know, obviously that takes time to to, you know, to pay dividends, if you will. Are you hearing from Republicans who are willing to support climate related legislation? Yeah. So we can actually see it if we look in the recent past. So last Congress, there actually were uh, a handful of pro climate votes that that lots of Republicans took. I think there was willingness to take those votes because they weren't being asked to shout about climate from the rooftops necessarily. So the I'm example sure. I have in mind is um, is the bipartisan infrastructure law. So that that infrastructure package had 
tons of money and and investments for climate related stuff in it. But because it was overall presented as being about infrastructure and with that framing, uh, there were plenty of Republicans who were willing to take that take that yes vote and get that legislation across the finish line. And then there are times also when climate is a little more front and center and they're still willing to move it ahead. So there was a bill called the Growing Climate Solutions Act last Congress. Basically, it was a way to help farmers and foresters get easier access to carbon markets. So essentially, it it was helping incentivize their climate smart choices and climate smart practices on farms and with how how their forests were managed and things like that. That first passed the Senate in the summer of 2020 with overwhelming bipartisan support. I think the vote was 92 to 8. And climate was right there in the name of the bill. Um, and that one was actually passed into law at the end of this past Congress. It was rolled up in, a, in an omnibus package. And so, um, so we do see examples of Republicans coming to the table. And I think I would just zoom out a little bit too, and just say that, you know, because you're asking about, you know, Republicans moving forward on climate. I think it's fine to acknowledge that they're, you know, the party is still not where we need them to be on the issue right. writ large. You know, they are still, you know, miles behind where the science demands them to be. And frankly, Democrats are also not quite there either. <laughs> like we need more ambition and more speed from everybody. So, you know, even if they're not where we want them to be, uh, we are working every day to get them there. Well, it's it's encouraging. I think, you know, it's back to our we were talking about earlier, it can it can be easy to be cynical, but it's good to hear that albeit maybe it's a minority, that there are Republicans that are more serious about taking action and you know, you gotta walk before you run. And so it's good to see if they're willing to take these incremental steps and you know, there maybe there's not political blowback, they recognize that they can, you know, take that next more aggressive step. So Absolutely. And not only is there not political blowback, but that's also a, a function that our volunteers can serve is providing uh, praise and support when they do take a small step forward. Because that's something, again, in our politics today, it's very difficult to get you know appreciation or recognition for doing something a little bit in the right direction. It's much more common that they will just hear, oh, well, you didn't do enough. <laughs> that's not good right. enough. And how, uh, how demoralizing is that, right? Imagine that you like did the dishes for your, for your partner or something. And then they come (laughs) in and they say, well, okay, that's, it's nice that the dishes are done, but what about the laundry? It'd be much better to hear, Hey, thank you so much for doing the dishes. I really appreciate that. By the way, do you think tomorrow maybe you could, could also do the laundry? I would appreciate that too. You know, Uh, it's a little bit of a softer, softer approach. I like the analogy. So I, for those, you know, listeners that we have, um, you know, outside the U.S., curious, you know, with Citizens Climate International, are you guys seeing progress, you know, abroad as well, right? The thing that is, I think, the most salient and also will affect the U.S. and also raise the ambition of other countries is that the EU is putting in place this year a carbon border adjustment mechanism. And basically, this is Functionally, it's carbon pricing that has an international impact. So it is a policy that accounts for the carbon intensity of imports and exports, right? So if a, if a product is made somewhere else dirtier, then the EU is saying, oh, you have to pay uh, in order to be able to bring that, bring that product here. Uh, you have to pay for the fact that it, was, that it was produced with X amount of carbon emissions. And so the impact of that type of policy is countries who want to trade with the EU have to think about how cleanly they are producing their goods. And 
clean up those processes so that they can reduce or avoid that that border adjustment, that tariff functionally. So that's something that the EU is doing, which is really exciting and again, it's going to raise the ambition on climate broadly because that's a that's an international it's a policy with international impacts. That's great to hear and and I think for people who sometimes maybe feel like you know all the emissions or the bulk of the emissions are taking place outside of their country shows that there are ways to affect other nations, you know even if you don't live there. So I think, you know, you've made some compelling arguments for why uh, folks might want to get involved. But I guess, you know, what would you say to folks who aren't engaged in climate advocacy, but, you know, maybe are kind of on the fence, you know, worried this, let's say they don't have the experience or don't have the ability to engage, you know, what, what would you sort of tell them to kind of give them that final pitch to get involved? Yeah. So, so yeah, it depends a lot on why you're not involved already. But what is the obstacle? So if you're feeling like you don't know enough or you're not an expert, um, I would say, don't worry about that at all. <laughs> because the most valuable thing that you can bring into a meeting with a member of Congress is your perspective as a constituent. It's enough to go in there and say, hey, I live in your state or I live in your district. I am worried about climate change. I see these headlines. I see, you know, uh, the drought we're having, or I see days of extreme heat. We have more and more of them. I see how early spring started this year. But it is it is always enough just to say, you represent me. I'm concerned about this. Please work on this problem. So if that's what's stopping you from getting involved, just know that you you and your concern uh, is is absolutely enough to make an impact. But I also know that sometimes what stops people from getting involved is that they don't feel like the system works for them or right. works at all. Right. <laughs> um, and it's not, it's not hard to, to think that when you kind of look out, uh, you know, survey the landscape of, of how our politics have looked over the last few years. But I would say, I mean, in the South, we say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Maybe you say that not in the South. <laughs> but, um, but logically, the reverse of that is, if it is broke, then you got to fix it. So I think the best way to restore your faith in the systems of our of our democracy or in you know the politics of this country is to participate because it's actually by and through our participation that those systems work how they should. So if you if you think it doesn't work then I would invite you to get involved and make it work. In other words don't be spectators and you know sit on the sidelines take that take that jump into getting involved. Absolutely. Well, Flannery, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about the exciting work that Citizens Climate is doing, the, the progress you're seeing, and giving us some you know, insights into our system and how we all might you know, hopefully make a difference and get us to where we need to be on climate. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So... What did you guys think uh, about the interview with Flannery? I thought it was really refreshing this episode just to hear about how lobbies are kind of being used now to help address climate change in a positive way. Just because I feel like when I've heard about climate lobbying in the past, it's only been in a really negative light. Fossil fuel corporations that have worked to use money, power, influence uh, to suppress climate action initiatives. 
So I just think it was it was really neat to get to talk about how people are are getting involved to yeah step up and kind of use this uh, mode of action you know lobbying as a way to really motivate change. Um, so I'm curious, what do you two think is preventing people from getting involved? I think a lot of people, you know, and, and Flannery talked about some of these categories, fall into one of maybe about three groups. The first being that there's this assumption that in order to go lobby for climate action, you have to be well-versed on policy, you know, when, when that's really not true. Mm-hmm. You know, I think another thing that holds people back is this assumption that you have to go big, right? They hear about people like Greta Thunberg and the amazing work she's done, but we don't all need to be Gretas, right? There are little ways that each of us can get involved. And with the number of people who care about this topic, if all of us just did a little bit, right, a call here, an email there, it would have a massive impact. And then, you know, maybe the third thing that holds people back to some degree in the US anyway, is is this, I think, kind of dangerous assumption that like somebody else has got it covered, right? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, we're making some progress, things are starting to move. And so I don't have to do anything. Well, there might be political issues where you can stand on the sidelines and eventually things course correct. We don't exactly have the luxury of time when it, when it comes to climate change, right? We've got less than a decade to make massive cuts. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Thomas? I think, Jason, that, um, you know, if this was back in the 1990s where climate change was this thing that was going to happen in the future, then the public were very dependent upon scientists and the people with the data and the knowledge to go and present the story on their behalf. But it's different now. You know, we're seeing day-to-day impacts from climate change everywhere, be it, you know, the changes in seasonal behavior and the impact on agriculture or sea level rise that's causing beach houses to fall into the ocean or excessive flooding or droughts or fires. These things that are happening are affecting many, many people now who can bring their own story. They don't have to come equipped with 50 years of temperature data. They've just got to come equipped with a passion and the story to try and convince their elected officials to do something about the issue. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. It's Climate change is no longer theoretical, right? You can speak from personal experience. Yeah, and I think it, it's great too to kind of see this, this change in climate legislation, this focus on reframing to make sure that, yeah, everybody, Democrats, Republicans are invested in the policy that's getting passed. I mean, we talked a little about like the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and that's a great example, right, of people trying to to find an angle on some of the the specifics of of climate change. Yeah, and I think it's about finding the right talking points for convincing the particular politicians or even individuals in the public. When I was, you know, working with wind turbine development in the US, on the East Coast, it was all about money, right? It was all about showing the business case behind behind the wind solutions. In in the Midwest and the South, it was all about energy independence and jobs. And on the West Coast, it was all about the environmental attributes of renewable energy. Um, so, you know, it's it's about adjusting those talking points, all trying to get to the same endpoint, right? But it's about finding those things that are really applicable to your specific audience, be it at a political level or just an individual in society. You know, so Flora, as we're talking about, you know, the importance of getting involved, 
I can't help but think that like there's something we need to be able to leverage more from your generation. Like as a, as a Gen Z, yeah. I mean, Thomas and I are more Gen Xers and I feel like, you know, there's a fair number of us involved, but if you look at it as a percentage, there's a huge number of your generation involved. And I just, I wonder what's behind that, right? Is it, is it the fact that, you know, you've grown up hearing about climate change, you know, there's more discourse about it, whatever it is, it feels like we need to tap into it more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, all of the above, right? I think we've, we've grown up surrounded by all these huge events from flooding to wildfires. And I think we're also learning about it more. This isn't my generation specifically, but I talked a little earlier about the like classes that I'm teaching the fifth graders that are about environmental justice. That's a huge shift to be invited into a classroom, you know, albeit in Portland, to come <laughs> talk about, I know, I know, to come talk about climate change, global warming, and like what kids can do as they're, as they're growing up to kind of address it. And I think there's also definitely a point to be made about accessibility. I think our generation is growing up in the, I don't know, the era of media, like all the time. I think we're getting our climate news quicker than past generations have. I think we're way more inundated with information about it. And also, I think there's a lot of power behind that too, in terms of organizing, yeah, climate action. Well, I guess that's a good segue to the question that we always try to ask ourselves, which is, what can we do? And this week, we've got two options. First is we'd like to suggest everybody, no matter where you are, send an email to your representative calling for more aggressive action on climate. We'll have some high-level talking points on our, on our website in the show notes to make it easier. The second option for this week is, you know, if what you've heard about Citizens Climate Lobby resonates for you, the idea of working with your elected officials to drive change, consider signing up to be one of their volunteers. And and if you're, you know, interested in this idea of getting involved in maybe, you know, Citizens Climate Lobby didn't feel exactly like a fit for you, I'm confident at this point that no matter where you are in the world, there's an org out there that's offering ways to get involved and, and make this whole process of pushing on government easier and ultimately giving you a community in which to do it. So that's all we have for, for this week's episode. Thanks as always to everybody for tuning in. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co and don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Oh,